Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we explore the work and passions of people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Sarah Sterling, the Executive Director of Entrepreneurship at SoCap Global. This podcast series is hosted by SoCap Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. SoCap Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features new stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. We expand the conversation around impact investing and explore strategies to finance and support important social and environmental change. Many of these episodes were recorded live from our SOCAP 22 stage in San Francisco. By the way, our next flagship event will be held in October 2023 in San Francisco. Make sure to register at SOCAPglobal.com. As a podcast listener, you can register with the code MONEYMEANING23, that's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3, to save $50 off the current ticket price when you register at www.com. SoCapGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. Today's episode of Money and Meaning actually features five separate conversations, all recorded with social entrepreneurs in the Cartier Women's Initiative, which in 2022 became SoCap's newest entrepreneur program partner. Founded in 2006, CWI is an annual international program that aims to drive social and environmental change by empowering women entrepreneurs. At SOCAP 22, eight CWI fellows presented their solutions addressing some of the world's biggest challenges in sectors ranging from wastewater management to healthcare to culture preservation. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations I recorded with five of the eight CWI entrepreneur fellows while at SOCAP 22. With each entrepreneur, you'll learn the company's impact story, the founder's personal inspiration and mentors, the challenges and difficulties they have faced and are currently facing, their advice for other entrepreneurs and change makers, and what support or ask each has of the SOCAP community. So let's go ahead and jump into these five conversations. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to have another entrepreneur from the Cartier Women's Initiative sponsored cohort here at SOCAP for this year's conference. And uh, today we are joined by Angel Chang, who runs her own 100% zero carbon fashion line. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So as a founder that is so 100% focused and dedicated to creating impact, especially in such a tricky industry as the fashion industry can be, especially when it comes to environmental impact, labor policies, et cetera, what made you want to enter into this sector and industry in the first place? Um, well, I always wanted to be a fashion designer So from when I was a teenager. So I did that, and I always thought, okay, you work for the big brands. And I, I did that for 10 years, first 10 years out of college. Um, but then after the 2008 recession, people realized they wanted something more meaningful. And so I went to China, um, into the villages for the first time. Um, I'm born to Chinese immigrant parents. And so for me, I was always American, but I didn't know much about my Chinese heritage. So when I went there, I discovered a whole new way of making clothing using traditional Chinese craftsmanship. And so um, 
yeah, I, it was just mind blowing for me. And so I, <laughs> they wear traditional costumes that are now um, at risk of disappearing because uh, the younger generation isn't picking it up. So as a designer, I was inspired to find a way to keep it going. And do you have someone you can think back to that really inspired you to get into this work or work ethic or, you know, who is someone that you can point to that has really been a major figure and inspiration in your life? Um, it's, um, I think a major inspiration would be my ancestors, actually, who I did not really research before I went to China. Um, but somehow just stepping onto the land in China, I became interested. And so I started to ask my parents, like, who were they and what did they do? And my great-grandfather was a furniture craftsman, so he worked with artisans. And then my other grandfather was a silk weaver studying natural dyes wow. and uh, went into – and then we had a Chinese uh, f pharmacy – uh, is traditional Chinese medicine, working with plants and herbs, um, going back 14 generations. And so historically uh, in China, natural dyes evolved out of traditional Chinese medicine. They were medicinal herbs. So um, somehow <laughs> in this weird spiritual development that I experienced in China, I, I feel like those on a, how do you say, like an ancestral cosmic level were really inspiring. Yeah, me. definitely. I mean, it really weaves into all of the different aspects of your work today, which is mm -hmm. just so interesting. And I think, too, I often ask myself um, with my own experience of working with artisans in Guatemala with the same issues mm -hmm. of, you know, um, extractive culture with indigenous groups as well as dying cultures of mm -hmm. younger generations not wanting to take up the craft um, and working in again, the fashion industry and trying to do something completely different and really dedicated and focused on, on impact and on the people that you're working with, what would you point to as sort of a major challenge or barrier that, that you've encountered in your work? Um, well, there are two challenges uh, and barriers. One is just starting up a fashion line, which is very difficult. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's it's more difficult than other startups or industries, just by the nature of what it is. It's um, and then on the artisan side, there's the production. So many artisans have never sold their pieces outside of you know their local community. Um, so then you know we had to create a supply chain. We had to figure out how to design it in a modern way, and you know it took me a good eight years to kind of figure out how to do that at scale. And when you're working with um, the artisans, what is your process in terms of how the designs are made? I know that they design a lot of the fabrics, but mm -hmm. do you work in a sort of a co-creative process or do you hand them sort of here are the samples and this is, these are the patterns we want to work with and the color schemes yeah. and all of that? Is it a co-creative process or how does, how does that exchange work? So this is, that's an interesting question because, um, you know, my first instinct as a fashion designer coming from New York was, okay, here are my designs, my sketches. This is what I want in these colors. And in nature, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had to unlearn everything I'd been trained to do in the fashion industry and start from zero. And so I realized in nature, it well, it's not that nature works opposite of the fashion industry, it's the fashion industry works the opposite <laughs> of nature now. So uh, I, you know, to design one collection takes one year because we work with the farming calendar. We have to wait when the flowers or the plants can be forged fresh from the mountain forest. Um, everything in terms of raw material is in a local um, 30 mile radius. Wow. So, you know, we can't, uh, if it doesn't grow on the land, then we don't use it. Um, and so there are no plastics or no metals. Um, there's no color that cannot be grown um, in that region. And so that was yeah, it was a whole new way of designing for me. So what I do as a designer, which is really um, what what we excel in as designers, is you have these constraints, and then from those constraints, we can design into it. And mm -hmm. so in this location, that's why a lot of indigo is used, because mm -hmm. that just grows wild there. Yeah. Oh, that's so, mm -hmm. that's so lucky, too, because it's not a very well-known and cultivated plant, I feel like, especially mm -hmm. for natural dyes, and it's such a brilliant color. I see, we see it a lot in Latin America as well, mm -hmm. which leads me to my next question in terms of, even though it is such a, an intentional and labor intensive process, do you see yourself replicating this anywhere else in the world? Um, and how do, would that process look in terms of doing this somewhere else geographically? Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting about working with indigenous and traditional cultures is that uh, when I go to other countries and I tell them what I do, they're like, oh, our, that's how we made our clothes traditionally too. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I was really surprised by this. And uh, so I feel like there's a human, humans throughout history made clothing in the same exact way. And then somehow 200 years ago with the industrial revolution, it was all forgotten mm -hmm. and things became very modern. And so now when I go to these other countries, it's for me easy to scale up because I don't have to retrain the artisans. We know how to work with the farming calendar. We know um, how to work locally. So you know, I have a zero carbon design philosophy that I've created now, which follows three core tenets, um, no electricity, all natural and locally made. Mm. And so by default, you know, we're not using plastics or chemicals or fossil fuels. Um, we are just making, growing everything in using only raw materials from the area. And you can only do this with indigenous and traditional knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's and I and I love how you're saying that you know all humans are are connected in the way in which we used to create clothes because when I saw your photos um, during your presentation at SoCap, it looks exactly like in Guatemala how they make traditional clothes and so I think that's just such an interesting an interesting point. Mm. So in terms of looking at the future of the fashion industry and I think too for any young designers that are just starting out, especially thinking back to your earlier years. Is there any sort of advice that you would give to them as they're just getting started that might help them on their journey to to be more environmentally conscious or integrate even their own local culture and history into designs or into the process? Yeah. Uh, so our generation, we're at a crucial moment because 
of the 7,000 languages that are spoken around the world, half of them are going to be lost in our lifetime. And so it's incumbent upon our generation to pass that knowledge down. Otherwise, it's going to disappear forever. And with it, the knowledge of how to live sustainably with the land. So, you know, the most important thing we can do is just ask our elders, our parents, our grandparents, how they used to live. Um how were things made and then to pass to, to, to learn that knowledge and you know how to make things from nature and from the earth and then be able to bring that into our own lives amazing I agree as well mm-hmm. so for our last question we as SOCAP are trying to be more of a of a community that is supportive of one another and so My question to you is, as a SOCAP community, for those who are listening in, what is one way that we can support your work and amplify the impact that you're creating in the world? Mm. Yeah, so right now I'm raising a seed round, uh, looking for investors who will join me in scaling up production so that we can replicate what we did in rural China to other indigenous communities around the world. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and your incredible impact that you're creating in the world. Thank you so much, Sarah. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to be presenting on behalf of this year's SOCAP conference. I'm Sarah Sterling. I'm the Entrepreneur Coordinator for SOCAP. And I am so, so happy to have Oriana Reschker from AquaCycle with us today, who is a representative of our sponsored cohort from the Cartier Women's Initiative. Thank you so much for being here and for your time and and being a part of SOCAP and for the work that you do. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So one of the the things that we love to ask all of our entrepreneurs who are interviewed is uh, really giving us a a sense around what is unique about your organization and the impact that it creates. So we do wastewater treatment and not something that a lot of people think about, but it is an extraordinarily important part of our daily life. What we do differently is we do wastewater treatment in a very uh, distributed approach, very cost-effectively. And a little-known fact is that the wastewater treatment industry, the water industry together, generates more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire shipping industry. And one of the things that really sets us apart is that we can operate and treat some of the most untreatable waters with 90% less energy, which means... A, at least a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases. Wastewater treatment is something that we think about on a daily basis, and so I would be really interested to hear why you yourself are really passionate and how and how you got into this type of work. Wastewater is not super sexy. <laughs> trying to change that. Most of us enjoy water coming out of the tap and water going down the drain. Uh, but that's not the reality for a lot of people around the world. And at a young age, I... Um, Felt it. So we lived in some very rural areas in the southwestern United States where, of course, water is has always been an issue. Um, and sometimes we had houses that didn't have running water. Sometimes we didn't have an indoor toilet. And, uh, you know, this was very impressionable. I didn't realize how much uh, until, you know, I kind of went through my life in science and engineering, you know, early career. And when I had the opportunity to really do some research that I felt was impactful in the industry. I, that was it. That I was done. That's awesome. And what, in terms of your life and growing up, can you think of anyone, either in the past or present, 
that's really made an impact in your life um, has contributed to your passion in this in this work that you do? So many people, <laughs> um, you know, and I think I think in terms of pushing the work forward and encouraging the work, um, I've had some amazing educators in my life, uh, mentors, teachers, starting from junior high, really, that inspired me to pursue science and engineering, encouraged me to do so. And that, you know, in the early 90s, wasn't the most coolest thing for a girl to do. <laughs> and um, and so that really inspired me to my cross-country coach slash physics teacher in high school, who really got me into physics and, and astronomy and kind of set me on that path to finally my graduate school mentor, who introduced me to this concept that bacteria have this amazing talent for breathing rocks and geochemical cycling and actually generating electricity. And it was at his lab that we really pursued this technology development. And, um, and we both sat together thinking grandly, you know, how can we take this into communities that need it the most? And in terms of, of tackling this issue and especially creating access for people who do need this service the most, what is one common myth about, about this sector or about your, your, your job and field of expertise? And it's easy and that it's solved. <laughs> I think the biggest one is that it's solved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have technology and it's been around for decades, but it, hasn't also, it also hasn't changed in decades. And so the populations we're serving now are much bigger. We're putting way different stuff down the drain than we were 20, 30 years ago when these plants were built. And, and not every city, not every town, and certainly not every rural area actually has a sewer. And so when you think about, okay, what happens when it goes down the drain, sometimes there's just a pipe out the wall, right? And that goes straight out into the backyard. That happens in the United States, right? Yeah. Just as much as it happens anywhere else in the world. And so, you know, it's really important to understand the fact that, yes, you know, in high-income countries, we do have amazing infrastructure, but even here, First Nations, you know, rural communities, underserved communities especially are most vulnerable to the fact of not having access to that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned for your specific model that you're able to tackle some of the hardest wastes. What is an example of something that's been the most difficult to tackle in terms of wastewater treatment mm. that you've experienced? So we love the tough stuff. So <laughs> if, if it can't be treated or somebody says it can't be done, we're like, okay, give it to us. Let's see what we can do. Um, and we've, we've actually um, kind of been surprised uh, even at, at how the technology can apply to some of these things, whether it's um, hydrocarbons like benzenes and toluenes and really toxic stuff that's difficult to break down to super concentrated waste that's a thousand times more concentrated in carbon than what you see in the city sewer. And, and so, you know, whether we're dealing with ultra high concentrations of stuff to just very complex organic carbon, um, our bugs love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, great. I think one other question that I'm really interested about in terms of the industry, because you mentioned in terms of myths that this problem is solved a lot. Of, there's a lot of municipal services for wastewater treatment. But what's one thing, if you could choose one thing about your industry and change it, what, what would it be? 
Risk aversion. Hmm. Um, You know, this is a a slow to change industry, rightfully so, because water and sanitation is public health 101. When stuff doesn't work, people die. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and everybody in the industry really takes that to heart as they should. And it's amazing. But at the same time, there's not an incentive to change. And so there's that risk aversion, which, like I said, rightful, rightfully so. But if people understand like, hey, maybe I've got a backup plan, so I'm going to try this. And if it works better, I want to do it. And that there's more of an incentive structure so that people can fail, mm-hmm. not hurt people and not to get people sick, but to try new things in a way that can really drive innovation. And so I think if we can get rid of some of that risk mentality and more toward an innovation mentality, that would be a game changer in our industry. Amazing. And I think too, it would be really interesting. And I love this question with all founders. um, And I love to highlight what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced being a founder? And I think too, especially being a woman in the science tech industry, like you mentioned, when you started back in the 90s, it's not, it was not very popular sector to be in. But what is one of the biggest challenges that you faced as a founder specifically? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we work in water, risk averse, highly regulatory driven, slow to change. Um, we're primarily a female team. So uh, my co-founder and myself are both women. Our third co-founder is, um, uh, he's a man, but (laughs) he's also from an underrepresented group. And so, uh, and, you know, the way that we're addressing the issue, this is not software. This is really big hardware, right? So we kind of have the trifecta of challenge (laughs) when it comes to fundraising or, you know, just really trying to move the needle. Um, I think... But also, you know, you can flip that coin in a way. Uh, so when we show up on a, on a customer site or we show up at an industry conference, we really stick out. Yeah. And sometimes that's good. People remember, right? And we had got a very innovative way of doing things, very different than what people have seen before. And so they're going to remember we're different and our technology is different too. And in a lot of ways, that can be a positive. But yeah, we're, you know, we face some inertia for sure. And I think, too, if you could go back to the 90s and talk to your younger self, what's one piece of advice that you would give her? Don't be so scared. Speak up louder in the room. Um, And I think earlier on, don't be afraid to fail. That's really powerful, I think, especially for – young women that are getting started in in any industry, um, but I would say particularly as entrepreneurs and founders to start their own thing. Mm-hmm. It's super powerful. And we have about time for about two more questions, but where where would you where do you see yourself in five years? What's what's your plan? World domination and wastewater <laughs> treatment. <laughs> um, Our plan, you know, the goal really is to have a strong foothold in helping our industrial customers be the water stewards that they want to be, right, and um, maintaining healthy watersheds and communities worldwide. So we we really want to be a trusted partner with with those companies doing the work. Um, 
In addition, we want to be able to scale the technology into areas that need it most. And that's a long game for us because there's so many cultural, societal, religious implications to bringing technology into water and sanitation. And so there's a lot we still have to learn, but we're really excited, especially in the next few years, to be able to start implementing in that region and in that realm. And linked to that and implementation and scale and growth and reaching, you know, sort of that last mile, we at SOCAP are really striving to become a supportive community where we're open to sharing resources and networks and connections. So I've been asking everyone this question, but I would love to hear from you. How can we support you and your work as the SOCAP community? Well, we love warm introductions to sustainable uh, officers, sustainability officers at large CPG companies. Um, so warm introductions to uh, folks that need our help, um, especially in the corporate world. Uh, it's a long sales cycle. And so the more people that we have as uh, champions within an organization, the faster we can move things along and the faster we can help. And so um, always love expanding that network. Always love to hear, you know, what are some of the challenges people are facing uh, in their sectors to better understand how our technology can adapt and apply. And, um, yeah, you know, raising money is an endless uh, <laughs> it's an endless game. And so always, always love to connect with potential investors and folks that, you know, have, um, have a mission-aligned vision with us. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time and for the amazing, impactful work that you do. Thank you. Hello and welcome. I am so excited to be here at this year's SOCAP event um, as the entrepreneur coordinator and with one of our sponsored entrepreneurs from the Cartier Women's Initiative, uh, Ting Shi from ClickMedics. Thank you so much for being here today and for your time. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the things that um, I love to ask, especially impact-focused entrepreneurs, is what is unique about your organization, um, your model, and the impact that it creates? Yeah, absolutely. ClickMedic was founded literally out of MIT as a class assignment. The assignment was simply stated as create a business that will impact over a billion people. So wow, <laughs> we had about yeah. three months to write up a business plan. And this was back in 2007. Wow. Remember, we didn't have the iPhone. We didn't have the Androids. We didn't even have smartphones. We had the, you know, KitKat bar, flip phones. <laughs> Right. So, um, but even then, we knew if we were to impact over a billion people, it's not going to be US only. And we had to look globally. And we knew that even though people may not even, even have good um, electricity or clean water, they have a cell phone or access to one. Mm -hmm. So, our initial idea was to use mobile phone and connect them to doctors. Now, commonly known as telemedicine, yeah. <laughs> but not with mobile phones um, at that point. Mm -hmm. And also to, to reach such huge impact, we can't build a network of health workers ourselves. So our motto is to empower existing health organizations that are already in these tough to work with communities mm. and empower them with technology and this technology advances, so do they in terms of their impact, reach, and scale. Amazing, and you mentioned this, that you started this as a student. Yeah. So why, why this particular sector, mm. area of expertise. Yeah. Why are you so passionate about this yeah. type of work? So I've been a career ADD <laughs> ever <laughs> since graduating with a computer science degree. I started working with the Department, Department of Defense, 
that was oh. not fun at all, working with weapons. <laughs> I'm like, that's not excited about that. Then I worked for a pharmaceutical company, GSK. I love their mission, helping people live better and live longer. But I was in IT, doing disaster recovery of all things. Wow. It was so far from reaching that healthcare impact and working with patients. So I applied for business school at MIT and thought that's how I can make a huge pivot from technology only to really impacting lives. And this class project was just perfect. I literally wrote what my dream would be <laughs> to do, and it happened. That's, ins that's so crazy in such a great way and so inspiring. Um, so in terms of, I mean, you say it yourself, impacting a billion lives and what a huge challenge that must be. Um, and I'm assuming that there are many other challenges associated with your work today. So what, if you could pick at least one, what's one of the biggest challenges that you face? I think when you, you know, think you're attracted to social and entrepreneurship thinking, this is so awesome. I'm going to be able to save the, you know, I'm going to be able to save the world and create a cure and all of these very exciting things. And you work on the product, you see the patient, you see everything working. And then you say, oh, now how do I get money? <laughs> mm. How do I get money to grow it? Because at some point, your passion and you working for free and getting your friends <laughs> to work for free and free interns, all of that only goes so far. But when you really want to reach scale, it's, okay, I need partners with real money behind it or a way to make sure this model is sustainable on its own and how do I grow faster? I think the, 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 the main learning you know, within the first three years was, follow the money. For me, to figure out, well, one, you need to have a model that works. Someone is paying you, and either you're relying on grant or investors, or you have a model that makes money on its own. Mm -hmm. So I think that part was really challenging learning, because you're just so excited about, you know, seeing things work, and you just want to grow that, and, you know, forgetting about the money part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And when you're talking about, I know that you went into this thinking about the impact from the very beginning. What are sort of the core values um, when it comes to the kind of business that you want to build and have built, but even thinking about, let's say, ClickMedics in five to 10 years? What are some of those core values that you want to carry through into the, into the future? Yeah, for sure. I think one, it's patience first, mm. because you know we've worked through, you know, I mentioned follow the money. We followed the money you know, looking at selling it to clinicians, to governments, to hospitals, to insurance companies. The last point, insurance companies, right? They're mm -hmm. often considered kind of the other side <laughs> of healthcare, as, at least from a payment ecosystem. And our North Star is always being patient first. What do we do that makes sure the patient is always getting better care at lower cost and faster care? So that's being very helpful because at some point you're thinking, you're helping a lot of people working with payers, but mm -hmm. at some point, you know, they do have to deny claims and not pay for things. And how do you justify that? And how do you make sure that doesn't happen? And, you know, we certainly do that by preventing high-cost events in the first place. At the end, everything does work out if you put patients first and mm -hmm. therefore lowering costs and improving health outcomes. Great. If And then you work in such an amazing and complex, like you mentioned, you have um, all of the sort of insurance companies as well as the, the physicians and, and the actual clients or patients themselves. In terms of the healthcare industry that you work in, if you could change one thing 
about that industry, if you have a magic wand yeah. and just change it, what would it be? Oh, I think it would certainly be cost. I mean, healthcare should be free. It should be accessible to everyone who need it. Um, I'd say, I mean, I grew up in Taiwan. It's a country where healthcare is essentially free. Mm -hmm. It's really, really well organized. Um, I think all over the world, you've got problems, even at some places where healthcare is free, but there isn't quality of healthcare. And if you look in the U.S., amazing, great doctors. <laughs> not even to go into how crazy the payment model is and ridiculous. It just does not make sense. It's not sustainable. I'd say the payment model in healthcare needs to be, you know, reformed. <laughs> and many attempts have been done, but there is a lot of cross-learning, cross-pollination that can be done. If you look across the world, we've worked in over 20 countries. There's so much learning that could be done there and potentially reverse innovate, you know, look at what works in each country and try to adopt that. And you mentioned, too, in terms of just, I think it's so interesting, the career path that you've taken, you know, department. Department of Justice and working with sort of more the the cause of a lot of healthcare problems <laughs> um, in terms of wars and things like that yeah. and disaster relief. Yeah. Um, is there a person you can think of who's really inspired you and maybe even inspired you to be more towards the impact side of your work and, and specifically in the healthcare industry? I'd say when I was applying for business school, which to me was a soul-searching exercise. <laughs> I applied to six of them. So, so I really, really needed to figure out why I want to do this. Mm. Um, I'd say, you know, I saw the um, graduation speech by Muhammad Yunus. Oh, yeah. That was completely inspiring. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I love his Banker for the Poor book. It's amazing. Yeah, and I ended up working with him. And for wow. Grumming America in New York to provide health care to his micro borrowers. It was, and I met him in person. It was like dream came true. It was so amazing. That's incredible. And then I think, too, in terms of, and you mentioned, you know, it's hard to get access to funding and being patient. But I think, too, what is, in terms of being a founder in this space, what is one of the most difficult parts of being a founder, I think especially uh, as a female in science healthcare industry um, and really being a trailblazer and a change maker, if there's one thing that you can think of in terms of a major challenge or barrier that you faced. For females, I'd say, I think, I think in my space in technology and female, it's, you know, <laughs> small and smaller mm -hmm. and and I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of movement, finally, towards gender lens, gender-based investing. Hum females get better returns, are more capital efficient. We are quite a long way from, I would say, even being on par with male tech entrepreneurs, right? Even when I say mm -hmm. that, male tech entrepreneur, female tech entrepreneur, it's, you know, there are very, very few of us. And I think it's, I think part of the challenge is, you know, how... What are the learnings that male entrepreneurs are doing that is getting more effective results? Mm -hmm. And there has been studies that has been made where a male entrepreneur pitched the exact same script, a female would do the exact same script, and the female is less success mm -hmm. successful in terms of the fundraising result. Yeah. There's a lot to be uncovered <laughs> there. So 
a lot of bias and yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's unsaid. It's hard to talk about, but mm-hmm. it needs to be explored. Exactly. And then if you could turn back time and talk to yourself as an 18-year-old, way, way before, you know, uh, right when you're looking at getting into university, so before business school and all of the experience that you've had um, to, to date, what is one thing, one piece of advice you would give to her? I feel like I started way too late on the entrepreneurship <laughs> journey. So I grew up as an immigrant, came to the U.S. when I was 10. I didn't speak English. I was very shy. <laughs> so I thought I was shy. And then, you know, I realized I'm actually an extrovert. I think, you know, when I was 18, I was not trying everything new. I didn't know you could create a business. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there was just, I, you know, I have nephews and nieces. I am literally trying to say, okay, here's a box of cookies I just supplied to you. <laughs> Sell it back to me. <laughs> you know, I would have told myself, explore starting businesses, do startups, and think about other past and traditional corporate jobs. So, I mean, I think I feel like I didn't start that journey till I was in my late 20s, mostly Mm -hmm. at MIT. And there was just so much time (laughs) wasted in terms of, you know, what I could be doing and, and, you know, creating impact is addictive. (laughs) It's a high. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's really great advice for any of our younger listeners who are starting that journey and thinking about, oh, what what do I want to do with my university degree, for example, or even in high school, you know, and, and seeing that as a viable option and pathway for them. And then lastly, you know, we at SOCAP are trying to create a really supportive and collaborative community. And so I would love for you to share with those who are listening in today, what's one way that we as SOCAP can support you and your work at ClickMedics? Yeah, I think SOCAP has been amazing. And it's just so great to hear from both sides. We have a variety of entrepreneurs. And from the VC side, I see there's a lot of willingness to help. How can we better help social entrepreneurship? There's a lot, a lot of willingness to learn. Um, I certainly think, you know, I think all of us can probably think of one thing you can do to help social entrepreneurs in your space. For us at ClickMedics, we are looking for partners in a variety of um you know, countries or disease areas, health organizations that want to scale their offering with technology and telemedicine, AI. And and I think to the extent where there is health organization that could grow more, could create more impact, we would love to help them. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Welcome, everyone who's listening in. Uh, my name is Sarah Sterling. I'm the Entrepreneur Coordinator for SOCAP, and I'm so excited to be here with Rebecca Hoy from Root Studio, who is part of our sponsored cohort from the Cartier Women's Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Rebecca actually was a post, uh, a pre-SOCAP entrepreneur from years ago as well. So it's just great to have you back here at SOCAP this it's year. It's fun to be here. So many familiar <laughs> friends and faces. So, <laughs> so I want to dive right in and talk about you know, Root Studio. And, and really, one of the things we focus um, at its, its SOCAP is really social entrepreneurs that are really creating impact through unique and scalable and profitable business models. And so with Root Studio, I'd really love to know a little bit more about what is unique about your organization and the impact that it creates. Yeah, Root Studios, uh, when we explain it to people what we do, sometimes we're like, wow, it's like such a unique collision of so many things. Um, Root Studio does sort of as a explainer of what we do. We work with indigenous and rural communities globally and create ways 
for them to digitize and license their heritage assets into a library for licensing, um, bridging their works to some of the most influential brands across fashion and retail. Um, and so I think what's really unique about the Root Seal journey is that it emerged as a contextual response to so many things that we were um, solving for, and it all made sense along the way. The, it, it sort of was a response to realizing that a lot of indigenous communities are um, holders of incredible knowledge around sustainability, around production, around farming. Um, and at the core of it, because they're making a lot of what they're owning, they're creatives and they're artists. But a lot of times people don't see indigenous communities as artists in the sense that we see artists in like an individual individualist society. Um, but there was always so many communities that I saw who I would love to have like a Juilliard recruiter see mm -hmm. them sing or dance because it was just so incredibly brilliant. And a lot of times I think we think of the rural sector and the just communities as people who are um, impoverished, but they were actually just so wealthy in terms of knowledge and beauty and wonder. So the Roots journey was very much, how do we amplify that? How do we bring that out into a world that is now trying to really understand what sustainability and what beauty and wonder means in a world that's changing? And at the same time, doing it in a way and a model that allows communities to stay intact, to stay in their communities without having to deal with very complex supply chains. So I think what's unique is that we combine working with communities that are in rural areas, using technology as a way to not displace, but amplify the work that's there, and then combining it with the global cultural and creative sectors. Yeah. Awesome. And I think, too, what makes your business model so unique is also, I, I'm sure, linked with many challenges along the way in terms of when you were just starting out versus where you are now and, and looking to scale and amplify that work. So I would love to hear a little bit more about maybe just pick one, yeah. one of your biggest challenges that you're facing right now and how are you tackling it? Yeah. Well, let me see. I mean, there's, there's so <laughs> many. How do, we, how, do we pick, how do we pick one? Yeah. I think it's both the, the thing that really drives our work is a simultaneous opportunity and challenge, and that is in the concept of bridging cultures. And so when you're bridging cultures, whether it's from – you know, a collectivist or more communal type of living, whether it's in a more rural space, whether it's um, communities that operate in an agrarian lifestyle, you're bridging that to like hyper urban scale um, consumer societies in a different region and country. Building that contextual bridge and maintaining that is something that we're really excited to create the foundations for. And sometimes it's also the challenging part too, whether that's like people who've never um, been in, in rural spaces before, work with communities to have them sort of understand, you know, how the, the context worked out there, whether that's like production uh, timelines for fashion brands versus how communities um, are on a different uh timeline that's very much kind of anchored around like farming seasons, et cetera. Like how do you reconcile those type of um, differences as well? Um, but I think that's also what excites us, right? Like I think that we see art, fashion, and creativity as one of the most powerful forms of diplomacy mm. that connects and unites like the, the human heart together. So, mm -hmm. Amazing. And I really 
would love to hear a little bit behind a little behind the curtain as to sort of your personal story and what got you to be so passionate about this particular industry and this particular work? Yeah. I mean, so many parts along this way has been just, I mean, it's completely shaped and formed my entire life journey now. Um, but I think when I come back down to, if I were to just sum it up, even though it's like hard to put it into like what, you know, people will say like, what's that moment or spark? Mm -hmm. There's been many, but I would say that what really drives me what is sort of the the cargo in life that I feel very drawn to, that, that is sort of the rhizome behind a lot of what I find deep gladness and deep longing in the world is beauty and wonder. Um, I see that when I'm traveling around with and working with different communities that what they really offer is beauty and wonder in the place of what we think otherwise has, has you know, destitution but it doesn't it's like what I really see is creativity and 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 you know linking it into creative sectors that are also celebrating and could appreciate beauty and wonder as well um and so yeah I'm just very drawn to that and I think that's sort of the kernel that drives our work awesome yeah awesome and then I mean this is a a an interesting question, I think, for all founders, but a specific, specifically because you have such intersectionality to your work, um, you're working across, like you mentioned, many different cultures and having yeah. to be that bridge and communicate those differences. What would you think? What would you say is one of the most difficult parts of being a founder of your business of a business? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I. It's a funny thing because I, you know, there's a, there's so many challenges. You're you're always like pushing a boulder up a hill, especially when we're in, we're not just founders, but I think we're trying to think of using entrepreneurship as a way to challenge and change how the world works in a very specific way. Um, so I think that sometimes it's easy to get bogged down by how hard things are. And I think it's really, it's a constant reminder for myself to focus also on like, what is good? Like what, mm. where have things like taken us that the river continues to carve this path forward in the journey that we're on and continuing to reflect on that and be grateful to that because the odds are huge. The challenges are, are sometimes if you really focus on it, it seems really depressing and insurmountable. But I think if you look back at your journey, you're like, whoa, actually we're here and we have come a really long way. <laughs> so I don't know if that fully answers your question other yeah, than it's, it's a bit of a mindset that I think um, I've learned to really embrace. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many, if I were to focus on challenges and kind of taking the same philosophy of like, how do you reverse that, right? Like, um, for I'll just say one, which is, it's interesting trying to confront the, we collide both like the, the, um, like the startup world and mindset towards scale with our mission, right? And sometimes those models seem kind of funnily incompatible. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I'll be dealing with investors and people who are like, well, the path towards meaning and a valuable startup is if you have $60 million in five years of growth and what's your plan to mm -hmm. an exit, right? And sometimes we, the startup world can really like value that as like metrics and, and, you know, there's elements that we we certainly borrow from from innovation and startups, 
But I think we also have to really remember and know like the DNA of like the artists and communities and who we are that we're working mm -hmm. with. Um, and to stay true to that and to build the peace and cohesion between what we're building and how we're innovating and being authentic to that. So, yeah. Awesome. awesome. So we have time for one more question, which is core to what we're trying to build at SOCAP, which is really a supportive community where we can be open to networking, um, sharing of resources and ideas, and ultimately collaboration. And so what is one or a few things that come to mind for people who are listening in and watching this, of, of how can we as a SOCAP community support you and your work at Root Studio? Yeah. The more I come alongside the journey, the more I realize like this is something that requires just like the whole community to come together, right? It's not that like it's like the startup or the entrepreneur who's driving it forward. It's like, it's like you, yeah, and sometimes a lot of people will say, you know, being a founder is lonely. And I'm like, no, actually, like, it, you can unisolate yourself by bringing your community on together, whether that's, like, our investors, our artists, our communities, our community partners, our team. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's so many ways. Um, one is that we're on this beautiful journey that, ha that requires different roles and parts, whether it's um, on the financing side to help amplify the work we're doing or it's like for us in our specific model is to partner with people who are really excited about collaborating in the retail and fashion space, which is sort of the main primary way that we create impact with our communities. Or it's working with the artists and communities who are looking for access to these markets that we can offer and bring them alongside this journey to share the amazing knowledge and creative forms from their own community. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's so amazing to reconnect with you after COVID and all these years. Yeah. And um, we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm here with Kelly Nguyen uh, from Dr. Kumo, and I'm just so excited to have you here for this interview. So thank you so much for, for being here and being uh, part of the Cartier Women's Initiative cohort at SOCAP this week. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having us. Um, so uh, yes, I'm excited. This is our first time. <laughs> so um, very excited. Great. Well, let's kick off the interview. We have our first question, which is, why are you passionate about the work that you do? Yes. So um, Dr. Kumo is a um, health technology provider, um, and we provide um, basically remote patient monitoring for patients. Um, so that patients could check their vital signs remotely and the providers could uh, actually understand the patient's condition remotely anywhere. Um, and the reason why I'm passionate about what we're doing is because um, I've always been uh, a clinician, a healthcare provider myself. Um, I got a doctorate degree in the pharmacy and um, with my, um, so all my life, professional career, I've worked with sort of like the whole healthcare ecosystem with patients, with my colleagues who are providers, and then with the payers, public and um, private payers to help, you know, cover for the patients. So our going back, our first startup, um, I had a specialty pharmacy. I began a specialty pharmacy, and I began working with patients who were living 
with a lot of um, chronic illnesses, either you know HIV, multiple sclerosis, hepatitis, um, and then also um, you know some were um, patients with cancer who may be terminally ill. So when I was working on that, I you know a lot of patients had challenges getting some of the medications they needed that the doctors or their providers thought they were the choice, the medications of choice. So working through the challenge with the patients and then getting all the medications that the providers and the patients thought that would be the best care for them and then get, getting them to cover because a lot of these were either really expensive or they some of them may not be covered or the patient's copay were too high. So by working on that, we kind of, I saw that uh, we were working with the ecosystem and that sort of, um, I saw the joy that the patients, when they got them and the medications were working and the med their um, conditions improved, then I, I was just working in that environment for a while and we were growing so quickly, um, you know, like at 200%, but we just didn't have the technology that could help us scale up. That's incredible. And what, so you mentioned growing and scaling quickly and having to develop this app. What are some of the challenges associated with that? And then also associated with being a, a, fund, a founder of this company in this space, in the medical sector. What are some of those challenges that you're currently facing today? Yes. Um, so, um, to, to answer your question, the challenges would be that um, I think there are two challenges. So one of them would be the um, um, the marketing, like because this is still relatively new. So to let the providers and the clinics and the um, healthcare institutions know, it's still taking some time. And then with people in healthcare adopting. Um, adapting and adopting a new technology into their practices or institutions, it still takes time for us to sort of um, talk to them. Um, so that's one of the things. And I think it's still really, even though you may see a lot of uh, the people out in the market, but it's still relatively new. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, in terms of um, the other challenge, I would say is we're growing quite a bit. So finding the right team to join mm -hmm. is another one that uh, the people have to like a lot of our team members are, are really passionate in what we're doing because you know everyone ha has the option of choosing where they want to work but they work with us because there are challenges as a startup but then the joy and and the, when you overcome those challenges and be able to get to the destination or it is really um, a huge reward. Definitely. That's really that's really incredible and I love that you're talking about why there's that commitment on the team and trying to find other people who are attracted to that same sort of passion for the the medical industry. And so my next question is related around it can be internal internal or external, but what is unique about the impact that you're creating in the world or the model that you use? To, to reach your patients or even internally to attract team members? What's sort of that, that unique special sauce, we like to call it, um, around Dr. Kumo? Yes, Sarah. So I think in terms of the unique, probably like unique um, 
proposition that we could think of mm -hmm. um, for Dr. Kumo. I would, um, so I think internally it's the team. Um, you know, if, if you search uh, remote patient monitoring, there could be many, uh, many of the companies trying to do the same thing. I think what um, makes us unique and stand out is that number one, internally it's our team because nothing will become of a success if there wasn't like a team's effort, like a collective effort. So our team, we have a combination of healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, providers, physicians, pharmacists, nurses, um, and medical assistants. And then we also have the expertise in cybersecurity and data science and, and engineers and developers. So then we merge the understanding because I feel like healthcare alone, we cannot integrate technology well enough if we have it as an outsource because it has to be day and night. You work on trying to solve the problems. And then the technology people need to hear the perspective of the providers. So there needs to be sort of like a convergence of understanding from both sides so that uh, we could customize the solution that would best fit and makes it user-friendly for both the providers and the patients. Mm -hmm. So we always put the patients at the center of what we're trying to, to design. Um, so, so I think that was the commitment of the team is what makes it extremely like special for me because when we began five years ago, you know, it was just an idea, right? So it has to take this sort of like commitment and determination to make it work. Um, so, so that's the team. And then on the external side, the unique proposition, I think why like we're so passionate in what we do is because what we're trying to do, we really feel it's gonna make a huge impact to improve patients' life. I think it's really unique, this ecosystem approach to the work that you're taking. Instead of targeting just one stakeholder or one group of people, you're integrating practitioners and patients and having that focus on patient care. Is there anyone in your life um, professional or personal that you can think of as to how you got this vision and focus and passion in your life um, and what sort of values or insight that they bring to you to, to help you or inspire you to where you are today? So on my personal side, um, it has to be my father, right? Um, so my father, he, um, he, he actually he sacrificed so much for me. He actually um, took me like to escape when we were younger to immigrate. So we we were actually um, immigrate and and my dad single handedly we were at um, living in a three refugee camps, and he raised me single handedly when we arrived to America to try to work really hard. You know, he he worked hard. He began. Um, a new language, learning a new career, and just raised me and instilled in me the value of hard work, resilience, and never to give up. So, and um, 
he actually passed away in this November would be um, 18 years. And um, so all his life, you know, just really sacrificed for his daughter to make sure that she gets an education to be able to, you know, work well and um, and I shouldn't, but um, he actually inspired me to begin my first startup because he began to develop um, cancer. And by, I just took uh, three months off, completely took care of him, uh, moved up and, uh, you know, took care of him. And through that journey of taking care of him, I realized how difficult it was, you know, for someone to live through, um, you know, chronic and terminal illness. And so I wanted to make sure he was very comfortable getting the medication. And it was challenging, you know, because to, to the caregiver, uh, one day late or of giving the medications that you think may be needed or the care or the treatment is you feel like it's a whole year or years because you want to make sure your loved ones get the care they needed. So I actually lived through, and that was like sort of inspired me. Like I took two years off after his passing and just thought what I should be doing. And that was, that inspired my first startup. And then that sort of evolved and now with this startup, but it really came from my dad. Um, the sense of sacrifice, never give up, hardworking, resilience, and so, um, so I love him very much. That's so inspiring, and I really appreciate you sharing story, personal and professional stories from the heart. That's really special to hear. Thank, Thank you. you. Very yeah. inspiring, the work. So I, based off of that, I think it would be really interesting to hear you as this incredible, strong woman founder. What sort of advice do you have for others looking to get into the same sector or looking to start their own business? Um, what sort of advice would you would you share with them today to those that are listening? Um, I would say that to to begin something. Um, new and something different, um, to begin something that you feel passionate about or curious about, um, all of those, and then to actually execute those ideas and those visions, um, they're going to be very, very challenging. And you, we will face all the odds possible, all the challenges. Um, and I just wanted to say that if you really, really believe in what you do and, um, you know, and, 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 you, and you really want to go for it, then just, you know, it, there will be many, many falls that, that you will fall. Um, you know, you may fall nine times and then, you know, you, 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 but regardless, you just have to kind of like um, wipe your tears and um, stand up again and then find the people who will support you as well. Because along the way, sometimes, I mean, you can never do it on your own. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you need to share this 
and find the people who could support us either emotionally, um, mentally, psychologically, or financially. And, um, and then you, there may be many people who may doubt you, who will say no to you, who will laugh at you sometimes. But irrespective of that, if you really believe in what you do, there will be some people who, who will believe in you. And, and once you have those people, then you're going to be able to make it. I really, really feel that. So, so I would recommend that too. So our last, our last question today, and based off of what you just said about having a community support and in the spirit of um, SOCAP this year and, and, and every year, we want to be a supportive community for all entrepreneurs. Um, and really have entrepreneurship be one of the core focus points of SOCAP. So for those who are watching this video and listening in, how can we help? So for Dr. Kumo, I think I would like to request that if you are listening to this and um, you want to help us, please reach out to us. Um, that's drkumo.com. I'm Kelly. and. I think we really would love to have um, partnerships, collaborations. If you are like a healthcare, uh, you know, uh, clinics or institutions or enterprises that consider having remote patient monitoring or physiologic monitoring for the patients, because we really feel that this will be one of the ways to complement the existing ways of taking care of patients with. Uh, chronic illnesses or even acute care. Uh, we ask you to reach out to us. We would love to have more partners and more collaborate, collaborators or even clients. We love that. So please reach out. That, that would be how you could support us. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here and thank you for sharing your incredible stories with us today. Um, and we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you were inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SOCAP community, don't forget you are invited to join us at SOCAP23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can register with the code MONEYMEANING23, that's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3 to save $50 off the current ticket price when you register at www.socapglobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October and be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our next episode's release.